It is December 31st, 2021, the last day of the year and a perfect time to wrap up our countdown of the top stories of 2021. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you, as always, for tuning into the podcast. We thank those of you who catch the broadcast each week on New Mexico PBS, Friday nights at 7 p.m., Sunday mornings at 7 a.m., lots of other airings as well. You can check your local listings for all of that. But we so appreciate you joining us, and we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a message here on the podcast or hit us up on social media, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and let us know what you thought about anything we talked about in this podcast episode or suggest topics for future episodes. Let's dive right back into that countdown of the top stories of the year. This week, it's five through one, and we're once again joined by a special line opinion panel of working journalists from across the state. We've got Julianne Grimm of the Santa Fe Reporter, Dan McKay of the Albuquerque Journal, Algernon Diamasa of the Las Cruces Sun News, and Jessica Onsuras of the Carlsbad Current Argus. Thanks so much for them for taking the time. Let's dive right into the fifth and fourth biggest stories of the year, kicking off with climate change, a huge issue, of course, not just here in New Mexico, but around the globe. Really going to focus on the ongoing drought and what we can do here in New Mexico in 2022 and beyond to help stem the tide. Here now, host Gene Grant. Joining us again this week over Zoom, working journalists from across the state. These folks work tirelessly every day to bring you the news, and we thank them for taking time out of their busy day to help us reflect on another historic year. First up from the Albuquerque Journal Capital Bureau, Bureau we welcome back Dan McKay. Also with us is Jessica Onsuras. She's the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. And we welcome back Algernon Damasa from the Las Cruces Sun News. Rounding out our virtual roundtable is our friend Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Our number five story of 2021 is still a work in progress as we, we record this segment. We're talking about the once a decade exercise in redistricting. New Mexico lawmakers changed the redistricting process this year to try and take politics out of the equation. And Dan, do you think it has been successful given how the special session has played out so far as we're taping this? I've actually been thinking about that the, the whole uh, session is to sort of see how much of the uh, redistricting principles that came, um, the concepts that came out of the Citizen Redistricting Committee, mm -hmm. um, which was a panel that could not consider partisan data uh, and also de-emphasize public, uh, or excuse me, incumbent addresses in its work, um, how much of their work ends up surviving the session. And um, that is a, one of the debates that's uh, playing out right now. There's been kind of a deadlock on the Senate side for some legislative seats um, with uh, Native American Pueblo governors, uh, tribal government representatives um, at odds with a plan that would protect some incumbents and uh, shore up a few folks' uh, political support in their districts. So um, I think the answer is to be determined. Right. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, Algernon, representation was a big issue from the beginning. Critics of the new CRC pointed to a lack of rural and Native American representation. Uh, both, have, both of those issues have carried through the, during the legislative debates so far. So did the process overcome those concerns or not? 
yeah, I mean, we're still, there's still a lot to learn about that. Um, mm -hmm. And there's different conversations to be had. Are we talking about our congressional district or are we talking about local legislative right. districts? Mm -hmm. um, there's a very interesting um, uh, shape emerging to the congressional district. The second congressional district of New Mexico, which um, for a long time is encompassed just the bottom square of southern New Mexico and a little bit of Bernalillo County. Um, I think it becomes very interesting. That district uh, presents a lot of challenges for a candidate uh, to appeal not only to uh, various ethnographies and including Native American uh, communities, mm -hmm. but also um, somebody who can speak to people from the agricultural rural districts, as well as the oil and gas production sector of the Southeast. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on what the district might end up looking like, um, a lot more uh, voters uh, from around the Albuquerque metro region. Um, mm -hmm. I think that for any candidate of either of our dominant parties, that presents some unique challenges. And as far as the local legislative districts, uh, we're still waiting to see how that starts to look. Good point there. Uh, Jessica, the original bill to change this process would have given the commission the ability to select the final maps but some lawmakers said that was unconstitutional and that lawmakers had to have a say and be able to amend the proposals. But isn't that the only way to take, truly take politics out of this once in a decade process? I would agree with you and say, yeah, that is the only way to truly eliminate politics from this, this process. Um, but they did have a point. This is a process written into our constitution as belonging to our legislative body. And so they are undertaking that work now. Um, and I think that just to echo what Dan said, that we are seeing what is happening in this special session, um, reintroduce some of those, those um, political issues uh, straight back into the process. So all of the good work that was done by the committee beforehand might just be lost. In, in what is happening in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. Julianne, as we've mentioned, lawmakers are still hashing this out at the time of this taping. And there's always a chance the final maps get vetoed by Governor Lujan Grisham or there is a court challenge. But as things stand right now, how do you think redistricting will impact next year's midterm elections? I mean, it's, you know, uh, you asked me the similar question for, for last week's show that we, we taped just a few minutes ago. That's and right. I'll kind of re repeat <laughs> what I said, which is that like Dan mentioned, the um, redistricting committee wasn't supposed to take into account partisan information, mm -hmm. but we see that these maps that are coming out of the roundhouse have been changed um, in some cases significantly, in some um, cases in, in kind of more minor ways, um, but some of the considerations that are being made have to do with performance in a future election. Mm -hmm. And so one of the interesting things for Santa Fe, it has to do with Congre Congressional District 3, which is Algernon pointed out is the companion. It was the northern block of the state. Mm -hmm. But now um, the, the maps that have headed to the governor for signature, they really divide the state on this sort of um, you know, bias lines. And so you've got um, Santa Fe and Rio Reba County are actually in the same congressional district as part of the city of Hobbs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, trying to find a candidate who can gather votes from both of those parts of the state, I think, you know, could really introduce some 
an interesting, you know, kind of candidate that we've never seen. Um, I, I think that, you know, too, you heard some discussion when uh, particularly folks from the Southern, from CD2 um, were saying, you can't put us into CD3. You know, that's just crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have other people from the North saying, are we going to have an oil man representing us? Um, so I, I think it's really uh, the voters are going to determine that. You've set up my next question to Dan just beautifully. Dan, your newspaper, the Albuquerque Journal, had a very thought-provoking editorial about this redistricting process, and your paper is advocating for the governor to, in fact, not accept these maps because, as Julianne mentioned, there's the potential that the more urban-based candidates just won't have a feel for the, for the rural parts of their state and that the, the power will just slowly over time just go right back to the urban centers. I really encourage folks to check out this editorial, but do pick up on that where, where your folks were coming from and how this process might turn next. Well, I, I should first say I'm not involved on, in the opinion side of the newspaper, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's definitely a potential where you could have um, a two, you know, an Albuquerque uh, congressperson representing um, Southwest New Mexico and, and Hobbs and Las Cruces. Um, you could, if somebody emerged out of Rio Rancho, you could have um, candidates, you could have all three Congress people be concentrated in the metropolitan area. Right. Um, the reverse is also true. Mm -hmm. um, you could end up with, um, you know, maybe there's a strong candidate uh, from Lee County in the oil patch. Um, and in a uh, you know a presidential mid-year midterm election where um, uh, Republicans uh, are expected to make gains in Congress, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps you end up with uh, you know with with an oil executive representing Santa Fe. There are all kinds of interesting potential dynamics, and um, you know this. It looks to me like all three seats, if this stands, will be more competitive. Mm -hmm. um, rather than having two safe Democratic seats and uh, a relatively safe Republican seat, you're probably gonna end up with more competitive races all around. Mm -hmm. um, Jessica, uh, real quick, if, if CD3, what's been the scuttle down there? Because when you look at the map that's proposed now, wow, it's a, it's a very dis different district than we've been used to forever. Right. So, no, I think to echo what Dan was saying, we are we are really interested in this idea of a more competitive race. Right. Are we going to be seeing um, that diversity come to this part of, of our region? But I think probably the larger conversation is in reality, how how based in reality is it to think that we will have a person from southern New Mexico represented um, or be elected to represent us in that seat. I think we see it as a, a power move, a way to dilute a conservative portion of the state. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people here will tell you that they are truly, truly concerned that they will end up being um, ignored by whoever is duly elected to that seat if they if they come from a more metro area. Mm -hmm. Good stuff there. We'll stay with the legislature for our number four story of 2021. It was years in the making and took a special session, but state lawmakers did legalize recreational use cannabis this year. It's been a frantic race to get the industry up and running by April of next year. Julianne, were you surprised that it got done in 2021? Just a simple question. 
No, I mean, I, I actually expected it to happen the, the session before and was, you know, kind of lost a bet on that one. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, you know, it, it was high time, as people say, for uh, New Mexico to do this, especially <laughs> considering what our neighbors have done and, mm -hmm. and the position that we have in the industry with our longstanding medical program. Um, I think what's really crazy, though, right now is what's happening on the local level as as these local jurisdictions take what little control the state has left for them and they make decisions about zoning. We've got new news out of Bernalillo County that um, they don't want anybody to smoke cannabis outside. Mm -hmm. um, and you may remember my um, being incredulous on this program previously recall. when Santa Fe County said they didn't want anybody to grow cannabis right. outside. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what these local lawmakers you know, um, think they're accomplishing by like sending everything inside, especially in a place like New Mexico where people so value um, being outside. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Santa Fe County did the same thing with respect to the consumption areas that Bernalillo County did, which is, you know, you're a retailer, you want to allow people to enjoy your product, you have to build a room and they have to do it um, under a roof. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that will really persist over time, but right now we're really seeing this patchwork. Interesting points there. Algernon, are we rushing things in terms of the rollout though? Licenses are taking a while to be issued and time is running short for manufacturers to have plants in the ground and producing flowers in time to have product on the shelves by next spring. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge is that the mm -hmm. legislative deadlines uh, put things on a very tight uh, time clock as far as having a rulemaking process that really allows for public input. And um, I think honestly, uh, as has been acknowledged from Santa Fe um, and throughout the industry is we'll have to go back to the legislation and we'll have to go back to the rulemaking mm -hmm. and uh, make adjustments as reality sets in. Um, and also uh, just, and the conditions are gonna be different in different parts of the state. I mean, Julianne talked about how some local uh, bodies are saying, we don't want people growing cannabis outdoors. Well, in Doniana County and Luna County, growing it outdoors is not even really a practical option because of the winds that we have down here. And so that forces production into greenhouses and structures that have to be built and they have to be secured and maintained. And I think that there's just a lot of unknowns. Um, and so at the same time that we have to work really fast to get everything in place, get seeds into the ground and get things ready by the statutory deadlines so that the marketplace opens with options, uh, inevitably, we're going to have to go back and make adjustments. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. Even lawmakers themselves were saying that's a possibility in real time. They were saying it back then. Jessica, still a fair amount of concern that this is an industry that's accessible to all New Mexicans, meaning what's the sense or the excitement level in southeastern New Mexico? Can folks afford to get in the game, as Algernon just sort of pointed out? Well, you'd be surprised. There is a lot of people here talking about what they would need to trying to better understand um, the the rules to see what they would need to do to get in the game, as you say. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there is still a lot of, as Algernon put it, a lot of questions about what that means. Right. Um, we were talking to a um, 
a development group here in Eddy County earlier, and they go in and they build these metal buildings. And they said that they are seeing a lot of people come to them and ask, what would it take to build a greenhouse for me? Like, what kind of investment are we talking about here? So there are definitely a lot of inquiries being made, um, not only on, on the practicality of facilities, but also we're seeing a lot of our really small, what we call security groups in this, in this region, get a lot of inquiries too about what would it take to secure a facility if we decide to go into this business. Interesting. I would not have thought of that. That's interesting. Uh, Dan McKay, what's the bump here for New Mexico as a state? You know, as, as, as the state's agricultural center, um, are people seeing lots of opportunity on the horizon? You know, I don't know that it's going to be um, necessarily a huge revenue source for the state um, so much in terms of actual revenue, so much as it's um, an attempt to diversify the economy and add some um, uh, some different agricultural opportunities. I think, you know, as, as the other panelists have touched on, you know, there is definitely a challenge in access and, you know, how many people really have the startup money, the capital to enter the business, I think is still a question. Mm -hmm. Julianne, I got to ask you this. I got to wonder sometimes, you know, during this whole process, did we in fact almost, did we miss a window <laughs> on the amount of money that we could have potentially pulled in for tax revenue here? I mean, Arizona legalized, of course, Denver, I'm sorry, Colorado beat us by years, but Texas doesn't look like it's going to move in that direction. What, looking at the regional map, where does New Mexico sit in your mind? Well, Texas really seems happy to send people over the border to New Mexico for whatever it is that they don't want to deal with in their state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of my family is from Texas. I got no problem really with Texans, but um, we're definitely going to see some crossing the border tourism, cannabis tourism that they call, um, you know, consumer purchases going on. Um, I think there's a lot of people today who are driving through New Mexico up to Colorado from Texas to make mm -hmm. those kinds of purchases. And so, um, you know, all the economic forecasts that were used during the legislative session in the last couple when they were really debating this, um, they allocated some portion of the revenue that we could expect as a state um, to be coming from this tourism idea. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that, you know, people come to New Mexico again for a variety of reasons. And I think there's a definitely a, an advocacy group that says, let's bring people here for cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, though, above and beyond that, you know, New Mexicans are using cannabis and um, New Mexicans buy a lot of alcohol and New Mexicans are going to buy a lot of cannabis. Um, I, I don't think there's any dispute about that right. in so much as there's going to be cannabis for New Mexicans to purchase, um, given what some of the other panelists touched on. You know, we've heard from the director, uh, the superintendent of the RLD that they fully expect there to be a supply shortage. Um, and so, so that's what we can look forward to. And I think, again, you're going to see the local jurisdictions try to take advantage of their taxing authority, um, try to put the cannabis revenue, that new gross receipts tax revenue to specific purposes in their community. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see what happens. Good point there. Dan, I got to ask you, is there any, you know, the economic revenue projections, I remember just a few years ago, it was like 200 million, 250, then suddenly it was you know, half that, now it was like 50 million, something like that. What happens if we don't get a significant bounce? What happens to the idea of legalized marijuana? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that. It, it, that is a good question. I mean, these um, revenue forecasts really have bounced around a lot. And mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, I feel like the early 
estimates uh, w- were much more substantial than uh, the more recent estimates. It right. seems like they keep coming down, and it could just be that economists are trying to be um, uh, are trying to be conservative, or it could be um, you know the question you asked earlier about did we miss the boat, and now um, so many other places have legalized that it that we won't have as much of the market. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be determined by the, uh, you know, about this and we'll see. And as, you know, we talked earlier there, local policymakers are adding restrictions um, That's right. that, that may make the industry uh, a little more difficult uh, to thrive. Mm-hmm. As Algernon mentioned earlier, we're going to revisit all of this down the road. There's no question. We're just getting started with our countdown of the top five stories of 2021. But before we learn what number three is, Let's pause for some thoughts on climate change and its impacts here in New Mexico. We reached out to several individuals to get some personal reflections as we head into a new year. First up, ecologist and UNM professor Matthew Herto. We'll hear from him. And let's keep it rolling now with our top top 10 countdown of stories of the year for 2021. We're up to numbers three and numbers number two on this year's list. And again, this is non-scientific. This is something we uh, ask all of our opinion panelists and our crew to rank their stories. And then we try to develop some common ground there. But again, this is just a great way for us to take a retrospective and a look back on the year that was. Not at all scientific. Don't want anybody to think that we're trying to claim that. It's just an exercise and a way for us to look at everything that happened in 2021 as well as project ahead to 2022. So here now let's dive right back in with the line opinion panelist and host Gene Grant for the third and second biggest stories of 2021. Thank you to Matthew for those thoughts. We'll have more climate change takes throughout the show. Now back to the line in our countdown to the top five stories of the year. Coming in at number three is coincidentally enough climate change and its impacts here in New Mexico. The drought conditions just keep rolling on. We've got the Rio Grande drying in parts of Albuquerque this summer, and fire officials are bracing for a terrible wildfire season next year. Julianne, experts tell us there is already permanent change in New Mexico due to rising temperatures. But is dealing with climate change still a big enough priority for policymakers in the state? What's your take on that? I mean, I would say the policymakers in the state could never spend too much time dealing on climate change. Uh, especially when it comes to New Mexico's water supplies, which we know have not been really, uh, you know, managed and regulated in in a way that's equitable for everyone. We are in big trouble with uh, our use of Colorado River water. We're in litigation with the state of Texas. Um, I think that the more our local policymakers could spend on it, the better. Mm -hmm. Dan, lawmakers have taken up a lot of bills in the last couple of years on this. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Everything from a task force to study the renewable energy job market to the governor's landmark Energy Transition Act. But at the same time, we're still hugely reliant on fossil fuels. Yeah, that's certainly um, it, this tension that has arisen in Santa Fe over the last few years is, de- is you know, that um, the oil and gas industry is um, almost like the checking account for the state. I mean, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people in the southeast, I think, feel like they provide all the revenue and people up north spend all the money. Um, and there's definitely this tension over, um, you know, transitioning to renewable energy while also um, uh, trying to support the industry that is uh, providing so much of the state budget. 
there all, are also complaints about whether the state is, you know, doing enough. The state engineer, uh, the chief water official recently um, announced that he would step down. Um, and part of his complaint had to do with uh, a lack of resources for what he sees as, um, you know, water priorities in the mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. Jessica, Dan set it up well about your part of the world. How, how has the climate change conversation changed uh, in, in your region? Well, I think Dan said it really well when he said that we feel that we make the money down here and Santa Fe spends it. I think that's kind of the, the pervading um, feeling. Now, I think that part of that is the fact that we don't talk enough about how the oil and gas industry itself is doing work to address climate change and its impact on, on the state and in the Permian Basin. Um, the real conversation down here is talking about all of the um, scientific and actually facilities put in place that will help them reduce their impacts um, on New Mexico's skies, on New Mexico's water, um, and when it comes to pollution across the board. Mm. Algernon, you know, how does New Mexico go about threading this needle, this classic problem between feeding the state coffers we're talking about with oil and gas money while trying to curb greenhouse gas emissions and other things that make quality of life, you know, important? I think the real difficult part of this conversation is that we're talking about a, a kind of a transition period mm -hmm. where we can diversify revenue streams as well as how we're getting energy into our grid. And that might mean adjustments for a period of time. And I think we're talking a generation wow. or two in terms of um, not only the revenue picture, but also just what our expectations are as far as the energy that allows us to live the kind of daily life that we like to live. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily point to scarcity or, or, you know, a kind of catastrophic scarcity of energy. But I think that there's probably going to be adjustments to uh, what we see, how much we drive, um, how we get that power and how we pay for it, as well as how the state generates the revenue it needs to do schooling, uh, medical services and all of the things that state funding supports. Mm -hmm. Hey, Julianne, can I get you to peel back to the Texas situation for a quick second? I think a lot of folks don't realize how huge this is for us. <laughs> you know, we, we've been at this for a number of years about what we owe the state, what we don't owe the state. And there's been accusations that New Mexico has not fought hard enough so far in this issue. What's, what's your sense of where we are with this Texas situation? Well, I think that's one of the issues, you know, Dan brought up that the uh, state engineer um, is stepping down at the end of the year. And mm -hmm. this state engineer has been, you know, tasked with cooperating with the attorney general's office yeah. to, um, you know, deal with this massive litigation that is in the United States Supreme Court. And, and it really boils down to this idea of what do upstream users owe downstream users. And so this argument is that, you know, has New Mexico done enough to send the right amount of water to Texas? Or are we just sort of this victim of circumstance that we're not getting enough water, um, you know, from the upstream here? It, it, there's a lot of nuance mm -hmm. in the Supreme Court case. And one of the issues has to do with pumping of groundwater um, adjacent to, you know, the Rio Grande and the Pecos River in southern New Mexico. And whether those actions that have been allowed by the state engineer had such an adverse effect on the river and on those downstream deliveries that, in fact, New Mexico 
that's responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those are just some of the issues that are being litigated. And this is not going to be the only big water case. Um, There was a big uh, study that was released this week um, about users of the Colorado River. And, um, you know, the the upstream users are shafting the downstream users. And that's the the story across the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dan, politically, what's the bounce here? I mean, water, it's been an old joke forever that, you know, we go to war here in the West over water and maybe one other thing. (laughs) But we have problems. We have a very definite problem. It's going to be really taking a lot of money out of our wallet if we let this sort of get out of control. So let me go back to that question I asked Julianne. Uh, um, This idea that New Mexico has not fought hard enough here. I, I hear that all the time. What are you hearing on that front? Yeah, there are um, some prominent legislators who really feel like um, the state has not done a good enough job protecting its interests in court. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have the expertise to to say whether that's a valid claim or not, but there is definitely some um, nervousness among the legislature about the outcome of these cases um, and, you know, how well New Mexico has done uh, advocating for for New Mexicans. Is it a resource issue, Dan? Do we just need to throw more money at it? Or, or what, what's the missing piece here that you're hearing? Uh, that's a good question. You know, uh, resources are not going to be a good excuse uh, for the legislature right. going forward, given the <laughs> um, volume of money that is pouring into the state yeah. from various stimulus packages, federal legislation, um, and the oil industry is um, also really pouring in some money. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I, I feel like people are going to be less uh, inclined to give the state a break uh, when it comes to lack of resources. Good point there. And now we're up to our second biggest story of 2021, education in a pandemic. Schools did reopen to in-person learning this year, of course, but enrollment is still down in our public schools. And there have been plenty of hiccups with mark requirements, COVID outbreaks, and, and of course, learning loss. It's not a unique situation to New Mexico, certainly, but in hindsight, Julianne, Did we do the right thing by reopening schools in April? I think the number of parents who said that their children were being adversely affected with um, educational and social outcomes was really what drove that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, like is always the story, the um, kids who come from places where they have slow and low internet and they have little or no technology assistance available to them, those are the kids that suffered the most from the remote only learning. And so I think that making the argument that sending everyone back to school to attempt to keep working on equity for education for everyone was was the right move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw our the LFC reported uh, in the fall that New Mexico students lost um, between six, I'm sorry, 10 and 60 days of education um, because of the pandemic, because of, you know, not being able to access the internet from home or having three kids trying to use the same uh, connection at the same time. Uh, You know, there, there were, I think, a variety of challenges for every family, but that is a big gap to overcome. And those Mm -hmm. Analysts for the legislature said that for many students, for the students that lost the most days, you're looking at it taking like six years for them to catch up on that lost time. So think about how that affects your third grader who in New Mexico is already historically inclined to be behind, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So our our students at elementary school pre-pandemic, 37% of them were learning at grade level. 
post-pandemic, that number dropped to 31%. I would argue both of those numbers are pretty shameful. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there. Uh, Jessica, a common theme in a lot of our stories this year, of course, is the urban-rural divide, and that has definitely been true with how schools, and especially school boards, have reacted to the mask mandates. I mean, what do we need to do as a state to get more on the same page? And I'm gonna put you on the, on the wall here, in your part of the state. I mean, I've been, I've been down south a lot this past summer for various reasons. Oh man, the mask thing was such a hot point down there. Yeah, we have this huge aversion to wearing masks because we're told to wear masks apparently. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think that in our school district, you will find, um, People want to do what is right to protect the health and wellness of our children, but they want to see that um, decision come from locals. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at our local school districts, you'll hear them say a lot of our local superintendent says, hey, we're not the mask police, but we are, you know, we are asking you kindly to do this. And if not, you have another option, which is to take your child into remote learning, which they still offer. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that part of the the, the biggest problem for us is saying we want to see that control back in the hands of our local school districts, of our local superintendents. We want parents to have more of an input. As Julianne said, you know, there was parents who said, hey, this is adversely affecting our children. We want to see them back in a classroom. I think if you go back and ask parents now whether they regret moving their child from remote back into in-class um, learning, they'll say, no, absolutely not. We think this is the path forward for us. Mm-hmm. Algernon students age 5 to 11, of course, can now be vaccinated. How do you think that changes the game uh, in our state? Are, are parents hearing this and the numbers pointing out that they're taking care of business here? So initially, there was a pretty good jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it exceeded the State Department of Health's expectations as far as parents um, wanting to uh, get their kids some protection against COVID-19. And uh, the more uh, warm bodies that are vaccinated, the more of a, of a kind of a firewall we have as far as slowing down the spread and the mutation of the virus. Um, the numbers indicate that that has slowed down some, but there's still a, a pretty strong participation in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, there's a, I think it's, uh, you know, as Jessica was pointing out, I think people um, are motivated to make certain decisions, but they may be less motivated when it's a directive and when they're mm-hmm. told to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a there's a tricky balance there because um, there will, of course, be people who decide not to participate in something that arguably uh, has a has a broad impact on our ability to um, restore some of what we used to consider normal. Mm. Dan, interesting point there, because colleges and universities, including UNM right here, have also issued vaccine mandates for student, faculty, and staff after some back and forth and getting public input. Was that a prudent course of action in hindsight? Uh, well, I mean, it's difficult for me to, you know, answer that or, or mm-hmm. opinion, you know, offer an opinion on that. I do think that, you know, it seems like um, based on all the evidence we have that vaccines are the most powerful tool to slow the spread of the disease, mm-hmm. to um, uh, keep people from, you know, reduce the severity of the disease when people do get it. Um, so I think you're seeing some, uh, you know, a response to that, that basically these, you know, the vaccines certainly based on the evidence we have, they seem to be effective and, um, and the best weapon we have. Mm-hmm. Julianne boosters, UNM is mandating those as well. Others are as well. Is, is this going to be another flashpoint here? Well, I think the state has given some conflicting messaging about what they're going to consider full inoculation. Ah. Is it going to be all three, you know, two plus a booster um, for all age groups? And, you know, uh, are different agencies going to adopt different um, 
you know, definitions of a full inoculation. I think, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, in Santa Fe, we're at 99% vaccination among adults. Wow. Um, you know, and I think that, that it's, you know, the aversion to the vaccine and the people who absolutely won't get it, who won't consider the boosters. Um, it's really not as much of a factor in our community, I think, as it, as it is in many other places. Mm -hmm. Same for five to 11, is Santa Fe is, is doing well there as well? We are, I don't, don't know the number off the top of my head and I'm not sure actually, we don't have a, a county by county yeah. breakdown yet uh, for the kids. Yeah, yeah. Right. A little yeah. early, okay. Jessica, I gotta say the question now is how we move forward and try to make up for the learning loss that we mentioned earlier over the last two years that Julianne mentioned. What should educators and policymakers be thinking about at this point? Well, let me just say that there are still a lot of challenges to now to actually getting us to a place where we can get caught up. We have a lot of teachers still out of the classroom. We have a lot of substitute teachers in mm -hmm. place where there should be full-time teachers. We have lack of resources. We have missing kids. If, if you guys are watching the news, you know that there are just children who've disappeared out of our school system that we need to find and make sure um, are, are safe and can come back to school system. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the future, what we need to do is really just kind of button down and and pay a lot of attention to the data that we're getting. Where are our children lacking in terms of learning? Um, we have consistently been at the bottom of education as a state. Um, I don't think anybody is realistically expecting us to catch up overnight or to get back to where we should have been. I think most of us are gonna be pretty happy if we can just keep kids in the classroom moving forward and learning. Good point there. Dan, I'm curious what you're hearing at the Roundhouse about the idea of um, extended school years. Anybody talking about that up there? Yeah, that, that has been a huge issue. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. The, the nonpartisan legislative analysts who evaluate education policy have basically uh, repeatedly told the legislature that you know time on task, um, you know, extending learning hours that that those those are powerful tools for helping people catch up. And there are some programs that do that. The difficulty has been getting school districts to participate. Um, you know, teachers are exhausted. They don't want right. to add, you know, an extra five years to the school year or, or five weeks to the school year. Um, you know, it's been difficult to implement it on the ground. But in some ways, um, you know, legislators have some tools they're considering, you know, financial incentive incentives, you know, uh, they could try something mandatory. Uh, I don't know. But mm -hmm. but this is, uh, you know, one of the most important issues facing the state is how to improve the school system. Mm -hmm. Next up on the line, the moment you've all been waiting for our top story of 2021. Right now, though, some more thoughts on climate change and environmental justice in New Mexico. Our next special guest is Valerie Rangel, author and professor of earth science at, the Santa Fe at Santa Fe University of Art and Design. The time has come for our biggest story of the year, 2021. Again, another year dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's no surprise that it would come in at the top of our list, specifically when we wanna talk about New Mexico's response. We had the vaccine rollout this year, including the addition of children ages 5 to 11. New Mexico was one of the first to uh, allow all adults over 18 to get the booster shots. We've had mask mandates indoors continue, vaccine mandates. Even recently, UNM announced that they would be requiring vaccine, proof of vaccine for events at the pit, uh, which would uh, be a change 
here, but this is an ever-evolving situation. We know the boosters complicating all of that. UNM also requiring students, faculty, and staff to have their booster shots here before too long. And uh, so just a ton to get into here. Even though New Mexico is one of the most vaccinated states, we have had that recent surge that has many of our hospitals uh, just completely overwhelmed. The U.S. military even coming out to help San Juan Regional Medical Center in Farmington. So a lot to dive into here. Let's not waste any more time. Here's host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. No surprise, but COVID tops our list again this year as the biggest story of 2021. In particular, we want to look at the state's response to the ongoing pandemic, from public health mandates to the vaccination rollout. Let's start there. Algernon, New Mexico continues to have one of the highest vaccination rates in the country, and yet our recent spike in cases has been one of the worst. What do you make of that disconnect? What, what's going on there? Well, what health officials are saying is that because New Mexico had so many people get vaccinated early, pretty much as soon as they became available, there was this push to distribute vaccines throughout the state, including the hardest to get to corners. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have we're seeing waning immunity, they feel. And uh, as the virus has spread, mutated and immunity wanes, you have this uh, prolonged spike in cases and this is not just New Mexico and mm -hmm. a New Mexican problem this is a this has been a national problem as the virus has moved around and so um, now the race is on to figure out how to slow that spread down so that vaccines can get ahead of it mm -hmm. but also um, to continue having this argument that we're having about how we all what is expected of all of us as individuals, during a public health emergency. Good point there, yeah. Uh, Julianne, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham recently extended the indoor mask mandate through January 7th. Are those mask mandates still having an impact or are people just doing what they want to do at this point? In Santa Fe, I think people are fairly compliant um, mm -hmm. in public spaces, including in outdoor spaces where people are fairly close to one another. Um, you know, I was just looking at some photos from Indian Market over the summer uh, um, and seeing people and they're kind of varying degrees of feeling like it's important to wear a mask outside. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you go into any Santa Fe business, whether it is a you know coffee shop or restaurant or a, you know bookstore or a, you know the Target, everyone is complying with the law. You don't see a lot of arguing about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but there again, I know we're in somewhat of a, a bubble here, and that that's not even the case. When I go to visit, uh, you know, to Harris and Edgewood and those areas, uh, people don't feel the same about it and they're not as willing to right. uh, comply with the state law. Are you having an issue still in Santa Fe with folks visiting? I don't want to pick on Texas here, but there was a time where a lot of Texans were coming to Red River, Santa Fe, a lot of northern New Mexico places and really not having it with the mask mandates by the governor. Is that still happening in Santa Fe? I mean, I think if, if you're walking into a business in Santa Fe, you're being asked to wear a mask and there's very few people who are trying to buck that. Mm -hmm. um, if you're out on the sidewalk downtown, you're still very close to people um, who think that it's okay to just, you know, rip it off when you're outside. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be the sticking point. Um, and again, the, 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 the law does not require you to wear a mask when you're outside. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that is the, you know, that's where you see, I think, the most conflict. Um, but the tourists, the visitors, no matter where they're from, when you walk in the front door and there's a sign that says, please put on your mask, 
Um, I really don't think you can, can argue with that if you want to do your business right. there. Exactly right. Uh, Dan McKay, uh, seven hospitals are so overwhelmed with cases that they've moved to crisis standards of care here in New Mexico. How bad would it have to get, do you think, for the governor to go back to even more restrictive conditions like, you know, we saw in the early days of the pandemic? Well, um, she has made it pretty clear in her staff uh, it, they have all made it pretty clear that they do not want to go back to okay. uh, capacity limits on businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, how many how many tools they have at their disposal, you know, is an open question. You know, I think they're trying to do what they can while not, um, uh, you know, restricting businesses again. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the mask mandate uh, has been a point of controversy. I think um, she's definitely faced some political you know, criticism on that point. Um, but uh, they have not, uh, the administration has not singled at all that it is interested in moving schools back to remote learning or um, imposing business restrictions. Um, we'll, we'll have to see whether there's anything that, that changes that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Algernon, I want to bring back this urban rural divide question uh, as nowhere that's been more clear than mask and vaccination mandates. Uh, was there something the governor and other leaders could have done differently to try and fight this pandemic back when, while also making rural communities part of the solution and getting buy-in? Well, I think really the, 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 I don't know that there's, I think the divide between how rural communities and urban communities understand the risks and the, and the options can be overstated mm -hmm. based on just some of the stereotypes that we hold. Um, I think that for rural communities, really, it was just a matter of having access. Mm -hmm. However people felt about vaccines, however people felt about, you know, the, the issue remains just access to healthcare services when needed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I think that even is a problem for people in some rural communities. When you have people who live in Las Cruces that need to travel to Albuquerque for some kinds of healthcare, mm -hmm. um, you know, these problems are not isolated to a community or, or a particular type of community, they're, they're really shared across the state. Mm -hmm. Likewise with schools, um, I think that what the pandemic has shown us is just the extent to which schools are dependent upon to deliver a number of services and security uh, for our children mm -hmm. across the state, rural and urban. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think this is one issue where I think that 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 line we draw between rural and urban sort of uh, consciousness mm -hmm. of our problems, I, I think it's a little bit more broad than that. And mm -hmm. um, really what what is relevant there is just uh, the difference in terms of access uh, right. to information and to services. Gotcha. Uh, Jessica, one of the more infamous, if you want to use that word, mask mandates or mandates, I should say, was regarding the state fair uh, from the governor this past year. Very interesting reaction. Of course, we had the alt state fair for the 4-H kids in Roswell, which seemed to be a big hit actually. And my big concern is that becomes permanent uh, now that folks have seen there's another way to do these things. But I'm curious, uh, with the state fair particularly, what were you hearing back then? Because boy, I was hearing some really hard stuff. A lot of folks took this as a personal affront from the governor and really were uh, personally hurt by this. 
you're talking about a beloved state tradition, right? So people mm-hmm. are going to have very strong feelings about it either way um, to begin with. Right. But um, I think you're right. We viewed what happened, that separation, um, holding our own mini state fair down south um, as a success. And um, maybe part of that was at the very beginning, there was a lot of confusion about what would be allowed and not be allowed uh, in terms of being a participant at the state fair, right? Um, what were the rules and regulations that accompanied having our children go out and show their um, animal at the state fair? Um, we we tend to look at it in terms of we're just looking for alternate solutions. We just want to be able to do those normal things that Algernon mentioned before in a normal manner and give those experiences to our kids um, and to our families and, and bring them back to our state. I think that if the um, state persists in mass mandates and vaccination requirements, that you're going to see a lot more people turn to alternate solutions or finding not necessarily ways around it, but ways that they can continue to engage in in these activities without um without the need or the blessing of the state right well it's a tough call down there it's it's amazing what happens when you have to you know do things that's not popular uh dan go ahead jessica my fault I'm sorry, I was just gonna say it was super encouraging to see though how many people participated, but on their own took up this this you know vaccination and mask use um, themselves. There you go, love that. Hey, Dan McKay, the governor's race is already heating up for next year. We all know that with Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, of course, seeking reelection, but Kara Kiwi, weatherman Mark Ronchetti jumping into the fray as well. How do you see the COVID pandemic and the governor's response playing into the race? Oh, I think it'll be a huge issue. It's mm-hmm. um, something that touches every single New Mexican. And, um, you know, these policy choices aren't easy ones to make. And you even seen, uh, you know, it's not like Democratic governors have all responded the, the same way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is debate within, you know, every state over how to handle vaccine mandates and mask mandates and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Governor Luan Grisham has been on the aggressive side when it comes to um, uh, it, you know, requiring masks and, and vaccines. Um, so yes, I do think it'll be a huge issue and, um, you know, kind of the, the broader political environment, uh, may favor Republicans given that there's a Democrat in the white house. That's always kind of a, a national, um, uh, climate that affects local races. Um, you know, whether that will make the race more competitive than it was last time, you know, we, we don't know, but COVID almost certainly will be a top issue. Good point there. What was your top story of 2021? Head to any of our social media channels to let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, before we wrap up this week's show, we want to bring you a voice of the future and her thoughts on addressing climate change here in New Mexico. She is a UNM Sustainability Studies student and took part in a recent protest on campus demanding the UNM Foundation divest its interest in fossil fuel industries. And again, we thank our line opinion panelists for making the time for this. It's a slog, especially over Zoom. We hope in 2022, we'll be able to do this again in studio. We really hope that is the case. The line opinion panelists stayed on a little bit for uh, a traditional segment we do when we're not doing the top 10 countdown, the one more thing where everybody gets to talk about something they're seeing in the headlines. And this time we did focus it around the top stories of the year. So sort of an honorable mention of the stories that didn't make our top 10 list but caught our panelists' attention for sure and made that 10th spot a hard decision. So here now a little bit of bonus material with the line opinion panel and their honorable mentions for top stories of the year. 
I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me on Zoom. The last two weeks we've counted down the top 10 stories of the, of the year with a special line opinion panel of working journalists across New Mexico. We wanted to take a few minutes to make note of some honorable mentions. Let's go around the table and find out what one story each of our panelists would also like to include in the conversation for 2021. Jessica Onsuras, let me start with you. What's your one more thing? Well, I think that um, if I had to pick one, it would definitely definitely be how one New Mexico uh, county commissioner found himself right in the middle of a January 6th controversy, the uh, arrest and charging of District 2 Commissioner, Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin mm -hmm. um, for his, well, some call it participation, but definitely presence on the Capitol grounds during January 6th. Interesting point there. There's been so much in 2021, it's easy to forget stories like that. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm going to cheat you on your uh, title, by the way. Jessica is the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, in case you don't know that. Let me spin to Algernon Damasa. He is from the Las Cruces Sun News. What's your one more thing, honorable mention? Just one thing that is not adjacent to any of the stories we've already discussed is uh, Spaceport America, located here ah. in southern New Mexico. This right. is a very, it's been a very interesting year because, uh, and not just because uh, Virgin Galactic had a couple of flights uh, from the spaceport, although that is certainly uh, a major development, mm -hmm. but also the spaceport has new leadership after uh, the previous uh, director was sacked amidst uh, an investigation into the finances at the spaceport. Mm -hmm. There's new leadership and they've really been working very hard to both address its use of public funds and to make that more accountable, but also to really try to change the narrative around and is not as a destination for wealthy tourists uh, taking joyrides into space, but as a serious research and testing center hmm. um, that uh, I think really changes the story of the spaceport. And I think that we'll be hearing a lot more about other tenants and customers of the spaceport in the year to come. Interesting points there. Uh, Algernon, I mean, the economic development bounce out of the spaceport, is that on the ground yet? Are folks feeling some impact from these wealthy people so far coming in and spending money? Well, what the leadership of the spaceport would tell you is that the impact is already being felt in terms of jobs, either at the spaceport, uh, through the tenants and the customers that work there or adjacent to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think that the measure still remains to be seen in terms of do we draw more aerospace companies into the into the region? Do they start employing more people? Do they start right. uh, using more uh, goods and services from the community? I think that the broader economic impact is a story that is waiting to be written. But I think that's certainly the direction that they're trying to uh, express as well as trying to portray the spaceport as being increasingly self-sufficient in terms of revenue so that they can come to the legislature for less appropriation funding. Mm -hmm. Interesting point there. I'm thinking about that road that was asked for a couple of years ago up there. Um, nice road. Yeah, hey, you know, if you're going to ask for it, get it built. Dan McKay, Albuquerque General Capital Bureau reporter, always glad to have you. What's your top 10 honorable mention? Uh, well, I think one thing we're seeing is that the 2022 uh, race for governor in New Mexico is already heating up. Mm. Um, you know, at this point, it's mostly a Republican primary. We're seeing a lot of jostling among those candidates for, uh, you know, the right to take on uh, Lujan Grisham in the fall. I think over the summer, you know, one of the things I'll be watching for is, you know, how much the uh, the race tightens. Um, the governor won 
she had a double digit uh, increase, you know, uh, gap between her and the Republican candidate four years ago. You know, can that how much of that will be bridged, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in an environment where Republicans are enthusiastic, um, given uh, a Democrat being in the White House? So, um, you know, I do think that the governor's race deserves an honorable mention. Absolutely. Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter, honorable mention for you. What are you thinking about? Um, I want to talk about PFOS. This is a um, class of hazardous chemicals. It is a word much mispronounced per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Don't ask me to spell it. Thank goodness we're on TV. Um, You've got, uh, you know, PBS worked with Frontline um, and Laura Pascas, environmental journalist and and correspondent there with your program uh, to really, you know, uh, talk about this in a, in a big way that it's affecting not just the water under, you know, some well-known New Mexico military installations, but it's in many of our state's waterways. Mm-hmm. It's in many of our nation's waterways. And so you saw the governor and the um, secretary of the state environment department appeal to the u.s environmental protection agency this year and that agency did actually recognize four of the pfos chemicals as hazardous um, which increases the level of regulation and increases the ability of um, you know officials to enforce cleanup mm-hmm. in so much as cleanup is possible um, mm-hmm. these uh, pollutants are referred to as forever chemicals because they literally don't go away ever. Uh, Thank you for mentioning Laura Paskus and our work here at uh, New Mexico PBS on this issue. We're gonna stay with this right through 2022 as well. And you're right, it's more than Air Force bases and military installations. Gonna wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in in Focus airs Friday nights, you might know at seven, but also Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for this podcast episode of New Mexico in Focus. Reminder, you can always watch the show Friday nights at 7 p.m. on New Mexico PBS or Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. And you can stream anytime on the PBS app. Just search for New Mexico in Focus. And, of course, we appreciate it when you subscribe to this podcast. Then you don't have to worry about it. The content will just end up right there in your feed. We ask you to please leave us a review. It helps a lot and spread the word for other folks to subscribe to the podcast as well so they can take it with them to the gym or to school or to work. It's a great way to bring that content with you. We thank you as always for staying so informed and engaged and we will see you again in 2022. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Until next time, Stay safe and stay healthy.